It's the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week podcast. I'm Christy Wilhelmy. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to our new format where we spend time chatting with expert garden guests to ask for their favorite tip. My guest today is Judy Gerber, co-author of From Cows to Concrete, The Rise and Fall of Farming in Los Angeles, and she's author of Farming in Torrance and the South Bay. She's an avid gardener and garden program coordinator for Torrance Memorial, using a community garden plot there, and has been a freelance writer on subjects including sustainability, urban farming, local foods, and organic gardening for more than 20 years. I'm so excited that we're talking today, Judy. I know. I'm excited to talk to you, too, in person for a change. I know. We only see each other kind of on the internet. On the interwebs and yeah. social media. And and we are both introverts, so I love the stuff that you post about introverts on Facebook. I, I know. it's This is very interesting. At least you're not recording video, so this makes me have some level of confidence. So thank you for that. <laughs> and... Um, and I just have to say, I, I love the shirt you're wearing. Uh, Garden Nerds, there will be a photograph accompanying this this podcast on Garden Nerd about uh, Judy's shirt. It's a it's a picture of a slug, and it's it's thinking I'd die for a beer, <laughs> which is awesome. It's very clever, and um, I bought the shirt from the Etsy shop of one of my fellow garden writers, Kiss My Aster, uh-huh. who's so uh, hilarious and also brilliant as far as her garden tips, so check her out. Excellent. Kiss My Aster. Kiss My Aster. Yeah, yeah. she's good. I think we're, we're following each I, other on I, Twitter. We probably are. Yeah. Let's start down down the path to gardening. Where did you start? What did you know? Where did gardening come into your life, and where are you now? Well... I'm always learning. Um, it's ironic. My dad has tried for years, had tried for years to get me to be interested in gardening, and I sort of blew him off, as most daughters do to their fathers, until you get to be a certain age. Uh-huh. And I started volunteering at the Torrance Farmer's Market. Oh. It's kind of a circuitous route, but it gets me to gardening. Mm-hmm. And I started talking to our farmers. That's how I got interested in telling the stories of California farmers. And I was so amazed at what they had to go through to earn a living. Yeah. And, you know, most farmer's markets have uh, an eclectic mix of farmers, um, different types of vendors, and they some of them have community groups that come out. And several times when I was at the Torrance Farmer's Market volunteering, there was a table of a group called the Master Gardeners. Mm-hmm. And I started hearing about the Master Gardeners. This was around... I know I'm aging myself, but you've, it already says in my bio that I've t- been, been writing about for, for 20, 20 years, years, so it yeah. tells you something. I'm at least 25. <laughs> um, so I sort of started exploring it, and as I started talking to farmers, and some of our farmers weren't farmers, but they were nursery people who brought plants, and I started hearing more about this master gardening thing. And somebody told me, you know, you volunteer in the community so much, you should become a master gardener. I said, but here's the rub. I have absolutely no horticultural experience whatsoever you know um, I moved around a lot I grew up in apartments I never thought about gardening and I said you know but I'm interested in the issue and for whatever reason um, when I applied there you know as it always was back in 2003 I think I went mm-hmm. through the training um, there was you know lots of applicants but they accepted me in the program and I went through training and have been a certified master gardener ever since I was just thinking this morning that it's now June 28th and I need to um, update my hours so that I can get my oh. renewal in for this this next year. Right, because as a master gardener, you have to put in what You have to it? put in 25, once you're certified, 25 hours a year, and then you have to do so many hours of continuing education. And I'm really good about teaching and doing my hours. I'm just not so good about doing the official um, reporting of the education. hours. Oh, okay. That too. <laughs> um, so I started, you know, going through training, and it just has led me to 
I mean, this wonderful world of, of people like yourself that are doing things that I always wanted to do and never thought I had the skill set to do. And so part of the continuing education is that we anything we are expected to go to that we can learn anything counts as time. But, you know, I'm a big believer in I always want to be better. And so I can tell you a lot about what to grow. I can tell you about what to plant when. What to make and cook with it, not so much. That's still one of my goals. Mm -hmm. I don't know a lot about ornamentals, so I'm still hoping to learn more. Um, And I started working with seniors. Um, My other hat as a writer is that one of my friends was a contract employee for Torrance Memorial, and she wrote a newsletter for people over 50. And she was going to retire, and she says, you know, you've started trying your garden classes. Would you be interested in having like a steady gig writing a newsletter and I said oh I sure would be because (laughs) garden writing and gardening is not the most lucrative um, or consistent profession it certainly is not and so she said well let me talk to the health um, health education director and she said oh you have experience and you know I showed her all the things I've written and she goes oh great and so I I did the newsletter for them for many years they started letting me do that and then pretty soon the gardening program expanded to become an official program and I always worked with my grandpa in the yard, and so I always had an affinity for working with seniors. And mm-hmm. So now I do at least usually two classes a month out at a garden plot. We The hospital's leasing a community garden plot from the city of Torrance, mm-hmm. and we have four raised beds and a nice potting table, and I teach everything from... You know, what's bugging your garden mm-hmm. classes to, um, you know, growing some specialty crops, like how to make a cook's garden successful. And it's now open to all ages, not just seniors. So I've repeated the classes now on weekends, so I'm getting kind of a new audience. Oh, that's cool. So I want to talk about the book, From Cows to Concrete, which you co-wrote with Rachel Searles. Given that there's a lot of talk about immigration in the news lately, I thought it would be really fitting to talk to you about this subject because immigration is so intertwined with agriculture and particularly in Los Angeles and California and and your book explores the history of agriculture in Los Angeles and I think you know most people think of LA as a concrete metropolis but what was here before all of that? Well I mean as you mentioned it's very um, intertwined agriculture and immigration and in fact when we did the book, I'm, I'm struck by the fact of how cyclical things are. I mean, what was here, you know, before the Europeans came, the native people here, you know, depending on which part of the city of Los Angeles or county, you know, had different names, be it, you know, the, the Tongva um, is probably the best known of, the, of the, the local tribes, but they had, they didn't farm per se, but they worked in conjunction and cooperation with the land. Mm-hmm. You know, they would, they had a communal process of if there was if there were things in abundance, they were somebody actually in charge of making sure that that abundance was shared within the rest of the community. They did controlled burns. They did harvesting. They planted things, you know, and harvested things from nature. And so once the Europeans came, that all changed, which, you know, we talk a lot about in the book. And, you know, the Native Americans were actually the first farm labor in, in the county of Los Angeles in California. Right. So... Um, what happened once the Europeans came was that all these different waves of immigrants started to come. You know, I mean, it's a long tale from, you know, native times to today, which, you know, was, was part of the challenge of the book. And so, I mean, there was an abundant, you know, we have a Mediterranean climate. It's not, people say, well, L.A. is a it desert. It's, it's not, not really a desert. Yeah, it's a Mediterranean and climate. And 
you know, people discovered that. And, you know, L.A. has always been, we talk a lot about this in the book, always been really good at marketing itself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, be careful what you ask for because, you know, I mean, our book also serves as a cautionary tale to the rest of the state. How if you look at certain areas around Fresno and Central Valley, you'll see, you know, butting up against agricultural land are now suburban housing developments. I mean, that's what happened here. Right. Land that was land that was used, used for agriculture. And, you know, there's there's a, an argument to be made for, you know, sh- should the Europeans have done what they did to the land? I mean, certainly the the native things that grew here that now we're trying to recreate and, and put back. I mean, even in the city of Torrance, they have a wonderful um, spot called the Madrona Marsh that has been there and was saved by residents who didn't want it developed that, that actually has some examples of what was grown here way before the Europeans came. So Oh, neat. It's really a neat thing. That is cool. I, I love how the book starts with a map of Southern California showing all the different First Nations tribes in their village locations. Uh, it really gives you a sense of how we are the immigrants here. Right. Um, the the book also has images of early missionaries and Spanish explorer agricultural settlements. Some, I guess, that go back as far as the 1530s. It really goes way back, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it, it goes right back. I mean, the irony of like who who really is the immigrant? I mean, like you said, and, yeah. and you know, waves of people that followed them. They decided that those were the people that would be immigrants and that were going to be the ones that serve their needs rather than working in cooperation and with equality right and fairness yeah that seems to be our biggest problem i think in uh seeing everyone as equal and as valuable you know you know what really led to the growth of los angeles was the arrival of the transcontinental railroad and the first wave of immigrants that worked on the railroad were the chinese and the chinese stayed here many of them had farmed and had farming experience in their own country and they were one of the first groups of immigrants that were you know we have several photos in the book um some of them are really hard to make me sad. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a group of Chinese um, immigrants working at a, a strawberry farm. I think it was in Eagle Rock. And a lot of the, the things and the laws that were passed as these waves of immigrants came, starting with the Chinese and then the Japanese and the Japanese Americans, you know, th- the laws that were passed for them not to be able to own land, for example, they were, you know, the alien land law of 1913 was passed, you know, and you, know, you could only lease land for three years and, You know, it just seemed to be um, one stumbling block after another for immigrant groups that came here, and it didn't matter where they came from. It it, it never seemed to be uh, on the same level of parity for those that came from elsewhere. Right. And I I mean, what you're saying sounds awfully familiar in the South as well, uh, you know, with African Americans trying to own land there. They were only tenant farmers, basically, on their own, on the land that they had lived on forever. Interesting. So what types of crops or ranching was the focus of Los Angeles in the early days, and who stewarded them? Well, I mean, the title comes from Cows to Concrete. The cows was once, you know, the missions pretty much resulted in the decimation of the, the, you know, there's still some Native Americans that have roots here, but the population was pretty much decimated by not only just, you know, diseases of the European sprout, but by... um, not being able to sustain themselves by, you know, they would apply, mm-hmm. they would apply the Native Americans with liquor and pay them and then put them in jail and say, well, you can't get out of jail until you pay your fine and then you can work it off. And so they were sort of coerced into going to the missions. This is, you know, basically, 
you know, they came over and decided that these people were, quote, heathens because they didn't believe in the same religion or the same God they did, and so they wanted them to convert. And if they didn't convert, you know, there was uh, penalties, there was, you know, there were lashings, there was beatings, there were things that happened. Um, you know, I found an interesting story of there's actually trying to have a, an uprising. There's this Native American woman who's pretty revered in certain cultures, Toy Perina, her mural, mural of her is in the Great Wall, uh, Judy Baca's Great Wall of Los Angeles and other places. They're all over showing her sort of one of the heroines of sort of trying to, to overcome the, the Padres. And, and so once the mission system, once the missions were gone, mm-hmm. then you had, you know, the, the, the Spanish and the Mexican generals and the soldiers were given land by these people from, you know, the Spanish and the Mexican governments. And that's why Los Angeles is so ill-organized. They started, you know, giving people who had served them, whether it was in the, you know, the Mex- under the Mexican rule or the Spanish rule, they gave them these pieces of land and, oh. you know, these huge ranchos, you know, just up here, if you look up the Palos Verdes Peninsula, you know, there were the Dominguez and the Sepulveda families. The Dominguez family and the Sepulveda families were kind of duking it out depending on, you know, who got the land. And so... It was sort of a mishmash of how the lands were done. And so these rancheros had these vast quantities of land with nothing to do other than to raise cattle. Uh-huh. So cattle was a huge commodity back in during the rancho era. And they were using cattle not for beef at the time, but they raised it for cow hides. So the, and, oh, right. and the hides were so valuable that they were, they were nicknamed California banknotes. <laughs> And so they had these massive cattle drives go all the way up from Southern California up to Northern California. And Los Angeles is always proud of being the biggest and the baddest. Los Angeles was nicknamed, sometimes derisively, as the queen of the cow counties because it was the largest of the number of cattle, but because there was nothing else here. Anything north of Monterey was sort of seen as a little bit more sophisticated. You know, there was some other things going on there. So the rivalry between Southern and Northern California dates, I, I believe, as far back as that. That's really, that's interesting. And so the cattle ranching, you know, that decimated all of the native plants. It decimated all of the, the natural pro- rhythms of that had gone on here for thousands of years. And, you know, when you bring in things, and the Europeans wanted to plant things that they'd had at home, starting with wine grapes, right. the mission grapes, which started at, you know, um, Mission San Gabriel, and the mother vine is still there. Oh, really? And so a lot of people started developing mini um, vineyards in the area around Union Station and downtown Los Angeles along the L.A. River. San Antonio Winery is the last remaining winery of those that had become commercial. So if you can imagine when you ask, well, what was here, once the Europeans came, I mean, you can imagine there were like luxurious purple vines of grapes growing in the area of Union Station and across from that where that sort of postal annex is. Yeah, that's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine. It yeah. was there. And, and it makes sense because when, you know, the Spanish explorers came here and they, they came to probably the area around the um, state historic park, you know, on the border of Chinatown over there on Alameda, mm-hmm. you know, it was this head of the river and it was this beautiful, luxurious valley. And so they all wanted to grow things. And so sure. they started non-commercially with the, you know, the first wine grapes and, and oranges, you know, the father of, this, of the commercial orange growing industry is William yeah. Wolfskill. Yeah. Um, and the commercial wine growing region, California, Los Angeles County was the first commercial wine growing region in the state of California. Interesting. Which makes sense if you think about how the mission system developed. It started, you know, from Baja up mm-hmm. and made its way up to Northern California. Yeah. 
And they started with mission grapes, but that wasn't good enough quality. And so some French and Italian and other immigrants wanted some better quality wine. I always think of our area as being orange groves, for, as far as the eye, the eye can see. And right. certainly Orange County, yes. you know, is named for it. And I grew up in Simi Valley, which was Chumash territory. And that is that was all orange groves, too. So. I spent, I mean, I grew up here in Torrance, but also part of my life I lived in San Fernando Valley in Northridge mm-hmm. from, during my middle school and high school years. And that was, even Cal State Northridge still has a remnant of the citrus groves that were there. Yeah. And it, they were everywhere. And then the Huntington has its section, section of right. orange groves because it was a lot of orchard trees. They also had avocados. They had, you know, they had all sorts of things. Um, but, yeah, I mean, when you think about I mean, Orange County was originally part of Los Angeles County. So, I mean, once, I once it was split up, <laughs> then somebody said, hey, let's call it Orange County because that's what we want to produce. So, I mean, it wasn't until people came, you know, like I said, with the railroads that they were looking to recruit people to come here, real farmers from the Midwest. And Frank Wiggins, who um, L.A. Trade Tech was once known as the Frank Wiggins College, um, he was one of the most uh, successful, and he was brilliant. He got a lot of people to come here using these wonderful marketing campaigns, you know, giant uh, Liberty, you know, a Liberty Bell made of oranges, Jumble the walnut made out of 800, however many pounds of walnuts, and they took it across the country and people came here. Right. So the, you know, Mexico used to come a lot further north than it does. Yes. And so there was a shift, a sudden shift in border, right? At some point, this was the Mexican-American War. War. Yeah. And uh, the Treaty of, what do they call it? Something Hidalgo, yeah. So how did that affect agriculture in this area? If it did, I don't even well, know. Well, if it did, that's kind of not within my what, my personal area of expertise. Okay. I know later on, I mean, how it affected agriculture and, and the Mexican, you know, I mean, as far as immigrants and all that. But I, I, I would guess, I mean, the land, you know, because it was under Mexican rule until the Mexican-American War, I would suspect that probably when they signed the treaty, one of my friends is probably going to tell me, I can't believe you don't know that. But, um, <laughs> I, I can th- No, I can think of somebody in particular who's going to tell me. Um but yeah, I would. I am guessing that no doubt the Americans probably got the land. That just seems to be how, right? Things worked under the treaties. And then whatever was planted whatever was there. Whatever was planted was planted, right? Right. I mean, but I mean, though. Oh, one one of the reasons that it was confusing was there wasn't any formal land barriers or land markers. I mean, the in Compton, there's the sycamore tree that still stand as one of the markers of the Dominguez Rancho property. So what happened was these Mexicans or these Mexican Americans by this time had to prove. That they owned the land, and they had to, they used these you know decennial maps that really had informal boundaries and bar- that marking what they owned, mm-hmm. and so then they had to prove it to an American you know once it became a state, then that was part of the reason that the Dominguez and the Sepulveda families they the Dominguez family lost I believe it was seventy five thousand acres of what they thought they had to the Sepulveda family up wow towards um, Palos Verdes, so it's always interesting you know depending on where I give a, a book talk or a history talk. You know, if it's down towards Cal State Dominguez or down here, it's like, oh, you know, the Dominguez has got ripped off. It's, you know, if it's up on the hill, people are like, well, Sepulveda's, that was their land rightfully. Uh-huh. You know, they both could argue their case. So I think maybe that sort of answered the question without me knowing I was answering the question, that it had to do with not having clear 
borders or boundaries of these rancho lands as they were given away. And because there was a severe drought in the 1870s that cattle would literally drop dead on land, oh. that they were selling this land for pennies on the dollar. Nobody wanted it. It wasn't worth anything. Oh. So that was maybe why it was confusing. Yeah, I'm I was, sure you could probably edit all that. I oh well no I think that was <laughs> <laughs> I think it's interesting. I kind of got into a circle going wait maybe I do know the right answer. you do know the answer. Um, so so yeah I, I, it's a it's an interesting turn of human events that that brings us to where we are today. You know, <laughs> it, it is. I mean, when we talk about immigrants, and you know, just reminding me, we talk about Mexican. You know, during the '30s, they were doing something called repatriating Mexicans, quote, back to Mexico during the Depression because things were so bad, and most of these people had never hadn't lived in Mexico forever, and some of them weren't. And they were, I forget how much they were paying them, but the Southern Pacific Railroad was being paid by um, either the LA Chamber of Commerce and some of these other. Or, organizations to send these people quote back to Mexico and then the ironic and I mean that's horrific enough but then the ironic thing was all the things that happened to some of these immigrants during World War II when there was a labor shortage number one they incarcerated Japanese and Japanese Americans simply for having an appearance of um, a group that we were now at war with and because there was a shortage of labor they started um a program called the Bracero program where they actually were bringing immigrants from Mexico to do farm labor. The, the program lasted until 1964, I believe, where they were pe- bringing people here um, to actually be farm labor. And some of the immigrants and their families that are here today are probably no doubt descendants or some of their family members were Braceros. And they still can't be here fully legally. They haven't, you know, they're here on, you know, quote, unquote, like work, temporary work, work visa. visas. And, you know, these are people, a lot of farmers have been talking about this. It's been all over the news in the last couple of weeks because the farm bill has just tried to be passed again through the House and the Senate. I think the House barely passed a version, but the Senate, I don't think, passed it. I'm, I'm, every day I'm trying to keep up. It's hard to keep up. And, the, the you know, different organizations, including the California Farm Bureau, are hoping... Um, that they will have um, a new, more formal process for having people become, you know, not temporary visa workers, not having to go back and, and reapply because they say they're a family organization, which they are, and some of their employees and their families have worked for them in, in excess of 20, 30 years right. and have never known anywhere else but here. Right. And nobody else wants to do the work of farm labor. And that's the truth, really, is that if you, if I mean, I, I've, I've read stories from reporters who have worked for a day in a strawberry field, and, you know, you get $2.80 per bucket of strawberries you pick, like five-gallon bucket of strawberries yeah. you pick, and it's, it's that's for eight hours of backbending, back you know, backbending with backbreaking labor, right? And you, I mean, you, you're lucky if you get to go and use the the porta potty to to take a. I mean, right? It's very, it's hard. It's labor intensive work. Um, you know, yeah, California. We are still the, you know, California is still the number one ag producing state in the nation, at least up until the last time I looked at the statistics. And I mean. It's on the backs of labor that does hard, hard work for us to have our own food. Right. And so we need to appreciate and pay a reasonable price right. for, our, for the, the food that we do eat. 
Yeah, and, and you get what, you know, I have friends that tell me, well, I won't go to the farmer's market. So my, my thing is I advocate growing your own food. Yes. But I live in California where I, I luckily I can get anything most of the year. Right. Because of we our climate. Very fortunate. And so I um, advocate strongly for purchasing from a certified, California certified farmer's market, which means that that farmer has been certified and passed um, certain standards to sell their produce to you and I. They get a better price. They get a price that is a little bit more realistic of what it costs them to grow things than than they would get if they sell it basically on the wholesale market or at the supermarket. Right. And and because they're taking out the middleman, they get to sell directly to consumers. So they make a little bit more off of that. Right. And they and it it almost makes it <laughs> worth doing, right? For them, yeah. Yeah. But you know, a lot of them if they can't come from. I mean, you know, the stuff's picked. You know, the day before, that morning, depending on the time of day of the market. For those of them that live too far from the market, they have to hire people in that local area to sell. But it is a better it is a better price that they get, a more fair price than just selling it to the wholesale market. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that's a very good point to make. Uh, I just, I want to, for those who haven't seen the book From Cows to Concrete, the cover image is of a, a couple of cows running down the freeway yes. with two guys chasing after them. Can you explain that a little bit? Well, that's sort of epitomized. When Rachel and I saw that image, a lot of our images, one of my, you know, as somebody who's a fellow writer, and when you have writer's block, one of my most enjoyable experiences of the book was researching photos. Because I can't, I'm, I've got writer's block, I'm just going to find this photo. And we had so many photos we've never used. I mean, there was over 150 or something in there. But... We saw the image at LA Public Library in the archives. It is um, actually a cattle, um, a, a transport truck overturned on the Golden State Freeway. It's in 1981. One of the gentlemen, it looks like he's got a camera. So we were thinking, is it the paparazzi following the cows? Or is it, you know, the wranglers trying to get them? But what we both feel, and me particularly feels like, it epitomizes what happened to Los Angeles. I mean, everybody thinks of LA as this concrete monolithic you know city that had never has any green or anything and the only time that anybody here sees cattle is probably on a, on a cattle transport truck overturned on the freeway or on the freeway unless yeah. you go up to the central when valley you or you somewhere drive by else. harris ranch when you drive by harris ranch and the stench and plug your you nose plug your nose right. right um and that's the other thing is i mean here in the city of torrance farm animals were outlawed in 1965 because people didn't want dairies anymore because what happens they cows do what they do and they smell they poop up to they 120 poop, yes. pounds of poop a day <laughs> right and so they kept you know they, the dairies kept getting pushed further and further out east and mm -hmm. now they're out in you know chino and that what's happened to la county is probably going to happen to them as people want they want you know where i live look i have a school in a park yeah i live in the burbs right people want that they don't want smelly cows right i want a cow i want a mini cow a mini cow i do well, I, you have you have chickens. You have we meat. have chickens. We have bees. bees. I don't think I'm allowed to get a mini cow. Well, um, you know, they're, they're, <laughs> you, you probably you know, as somebody who knows this, they fought hard to get with this to get chickens legalized and yeah. bees. Even here in the city of Torrance, we are now allowed to have chickens and bees. Oh, fantastic! Which is sh was shocking because huge. there's not a lot of people here that wanted them as much as I had realized so yeah. I was very happy about that it's it's almost like we have to go backwards a bit to regain because you know we have so many paved surfaces the runoff goes straight to the ocean we need to start re-permeating our land so that we can increase uh, the water in our aquifers once again and purify the water that's coming running down off the street with all the oil in it and all that stuff 
we're going off on a big old tangent here, but but, but that's the well. I mean, that know. was the whole point of the the title of the book. It's like you know, once you, it's like I, it's the Joni, it's Joni Mitchell song. They pay paradise and put, put up, up a parking, parking lot. lot. I mean, it's like big yellow taxi. That's the song. Yeah, and so once you pave it over, it's pretty much gone forever because people start to value the things on top. This is my opinion on top of the pavement more than they value what's in the soil. Yeah, you know, I mean, one of the things that you know, I, I always tease when I teach garden classes is if you want people to think you're a gardener, do not call it dirt. Call it soil. Soil is alive. Right. Dirt is dead. dead. Yeah. <laughs> or dirt's that thing behind your kids' ears or on your neck or their necks, right? Yeah. So I mean it, it it it's very cyclical, like I was saying when we first started chatting, you know, whenever we talk to people and they talk about the book or they talk about well look at all the stuff, you know, we sort of ended it you know, we wanted to be honest and we were like, we don't want to be like negative Nelly naysayers, but there is hope that people are starting to have more of a realization. You know, I mean, when we talk about farmers markets, you know, that, that was during Jerry Brown's first iteration as governor back in 1975 or six, when he passed the farmer direct marketing act to make it legal for farmers to sell directly to us as consumers. Yeah. All these things we're talking about that people, you know, Take Honey Love uh, went to the city of LA and worked with other groups yeah. to get them to legalize beekeeping. And that the took food two and, years. The Food and Flower Freedom Act where, you know, people were growing flowers. You know, it's, they, it, was a, it was another ordinance, the truck guarding ordinance that was put in place against in order to be discriminatory for Chinese and Japanese American growers. That's oh, really, that's, I mean, when that was put into place, because most Japanese were truck farmers, which meant that they had, you know, they had a plot of land that they leased because they were not allowed to own oh, land man. until about 1952, until mm-hmm. somebody finally won a, a case. And so they would take their produce or people would come to them and they were very successful. And so the city decided, or the county, I think it was the city of L.A. actually decided, well, that's not going to work because, you know, that's not fair to our farmers right. that have land. And so, that, in my opinion, that's probably the reason that they did it was, you know, to get rid of the competition from people that didn't look like them. Yeah. Just people of color or other. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I have a hopeful outlook. Uh, and I sort of, the song that runs through my head, as opposed to the Joni Mitchell song, is the... Um, uh, nothing but flowers by uh, the Talking Heads, oh, which is the reverse. reverse. It's it's a uh, it, this oh, yeah. was a discount was, store. No, now it's, it's all a, covered a, with cornfields. Corn you know that's true. So I forgot about that song. I'm I love that song, and I kind of hope that we end up doing that to all of the available land that we have left. You know, um, and 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 then some. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, as somebody who gardens and has learned that, there's things that we can put into the ground to make that, that soil and to make the things around us thrive even even more than they do organically or naturally. Right. I mean, it just seems like, a, you know, I mean, those that little baby cow, you know, that cow poop would be maybe good for that soil. I mean, Absolutely. It may smell bad, but, you know, it's just like your chicken poop. So. Yeah. And uh, and that's that's you know that's a whole other conversation. Yes, it is. So let's jump to our tip. Um, while you're instructing at the Torrance Community Garden, what's one of your favorite tips you like to share with the garden nerd audience? Well, as I tell people, whether you have a lot of space or not, that you want to try and start small. Think of it as like an experiment. If you if you've gardened before, that's different, and you kind of know what works for you. But a lot of people. All of a sudden, they'll clean out an area. My gosh, I have like 
two huge, you know, planter areas and I can't wait to plant. And I said, well, you know, you want to make sure that it's something, number one, you're going to eat, that you're going to enjoy, but that you're going to have success at. I mean, as master gardeners, you know, we tell, they train us and to tell people that I can't promise you that you know, everything's going to be a success. Everything's going to grow, but you're going to have more success by doing these things. Yeah. So if you can get a hang, get the hang of something, say something you really want to try, try it in one specific area that has the optimal conditions, mm-hmm. right? I mean, Mother Nature has the last has the last yes. word even though you I, i'm planting you know is it is it in the right season is it is it the right amount of sun so start small with like maybe two of your favorite things that you can't live without it's a warm season everybody most everybody i know i've only met two people in any of my classes and i probably taught over 500 people over the last 10 years don't like tomatoes most people like tomatoes yeah i know a few people who don't like tomatoes and, and there's somebody actually i met who was actually allergic so that's different oh, yeah but so start with you know what you're going to plant, maybe a couple tomato plants, and start with, you know, this time of year. Um, I mean, it, it's pretty easy to grow squash or something. Right. But you have to think about the space you have mm-hmm. and how that grows and make sure you just start small. So then the more success you have, then it sort of is addicting. And then pretty soon next season, maybe you'll start in the cool season and go, okay, well, now I'm going to do lettuce, radish, and carrots and you know, go from there. That's kind of my newbie tip that is a good that is a good tip awesome well thanks for sharing that tip judy well thanks for um thinking it's a worthy tip yeah i have a lot of them that i don't share because they really aren't that that good well no i think i think it's really easy for people to jump in head first and plant and over plant and and then they fail and they feel like oh i can't garden when it's really just start small and and plant a couple things, just like you said, and then go from there. Because gardening is addictive, and you want more land the more you get into it, and so you might as well. You're going to expand anyway. Yeah, that's, and if you have success, you'll be likely to expand, and then you'll ask you'll ask more pointed questions like, well, why did this work? Why didn't that work? Or, right. Yeah. Know. Awesome. Well, thanks for being on the Gardener Tip of the Week podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Christy. All right, Garden Nerds, you'll find more information about From Cows to Concrete on GardenNerd.com this week. We'll share links to Judy's book as well as her Twitter and Instagram handles, which is at LA Farm Girl. That's it for this week. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. Visit us for tons of gardening information at GardenNerd.com. You'll find us on Instagram and Twitter at GardenNerd1 on Facebook as GardenNerd.com, and of course, our Garden Nerd YouTube channel. Happy gardening!